If you're never quite sure how to answer the question, Where are you from? NPR's Rough Translation might be the podcast for you. Yes, finally, someone else. Give us your accents and your origin stories, your cross-cultural misfits yearning to just be, and listen to Rough Translation on NPR. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. What do you think about when you hear the term Latin musician? What sounds come to mind? Are you curious about the musician's country of origin or cultural roots and then think about specific sounds? This week's show is about defying expectations, the idea of being open to the unexpected to challenging your own preconceived ideas and then being pleasantly surprised in the process. We're going to meet two musicians this week who have carved out paths for themselves that might surprise you. We're going to meet Carlos Rafael Rivera, a film composer who's originally from Guatemala, whose work is included on one of the most popular Netflix series to come along in a long time. But first, a drummer from Cuba. Daphne's Prieto comes from a part of the world that we could say has a very dynamic drum tradition. And while he does know his way around Afro-Cuban drumming, he's established himself here in the U.S. as a band leader and composer that stretches and often shatters the expectations of straight-ahead jazz. But before we talk to him, let's hear a bit of his music and his drumming. That was Lazy Blues by the Daphnis Prieto Sextet from their latest album, Transparency. Every story has a beginning, and this is how it started for Daphnis Prieto. I'm originally from Santa Clara, Cuba. Since I was a kid, I would say five, six years old, I started uh, getting enchanted by music uh, in my surroundings. I was born 
in a very humble neighborhood and um and i used they used to be rehearsing on their houses and uh and they you know people play the radio loud and you can hear the radio it's it's, it's a very um interactive environment and within that i got to be exposed to music very early since i was a kid i was influenced by percussion first because i used to listen to rumba i used to listen to carnival music and all that and you know cuban music like more traditional cuban music then i started listening more of a jazz kind of drumming then i went into the classical music classical training conservatory so that gave me a complete different idea of what music is or could be and and so i was influenced by that too then inside of the jazz big umbrella i would say i also was start getting interested in in works of people like henry tregel and uh, or net coleman or steve coleman or andrew hill people that some of them i end up working with them later on right so and that has nothing to do in a direct way with cuban music right so i try to accept music as as it resonates with me you know in many levels as a in a human level in existent level but also in a intellectual level and in a musical level and in a you know an emotional level as well so to me that all is is a wide spectrum of influences and i try to personalize so obviously i'm going to have a lot of influence from from where i come from from cuba music so you can hear that influence but it's already filter through my perception through the way i do things i personally do things and you know uh that's something that uh, that you know it just it just it develops through the years and i like to see it as as a way to personalize things that you really care for and you really like to have that very specific sound through the composition through the arranging and through the playing as well uh you know and and being able to also as a leader to communicate that to the musicians and now let's hear a track called feed the line I'm trying to find my own voice and and that's who I am. I've been like that since I was a kid. I always wanted to do things my way. You know, I like to be part of a collective creative process as well. 
But the creative part is the one that I'm always very interested and in, very inspired by just to, to make something, even to be a carpenter, even to make something, something out of nothing. That it was nothing there. Like I, I love architecture, for example, and I love painting. I love you know visual arts. I love anything that it comes out of an idea inside of a brain of a of a person. That nothing is there, and in in a period of time, there is something there that could be appreciated. That people can benefit from it, and also it can enhance and it can educate and it can embrace and it can invite it can change people's life and way of feeling and way of making connections in life which is part of a, the whole experience at the end of the run right Back in the late 1940s, trumpeter and composer Dizzy Gillespie was one of the original architects of what we call Latin jazz, or Afro-Cuban jazz. And on his new album, Daphnis Prieto takes a Gillespie composition that has become a Latin jazz standard, and he does something very special with it. He discovers another way to release the beauty of the song. One of my all-time favorites is called Con Alma. Alma is a lovely song uh, written by Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, I always loved that song the first, since the first time I heard it a long time ago, maybe 15, 20 years or even more. I always heard it slower, uh, you know, and with that kind of intimacy, because con alma means with soul. So I always thought that it, it should have that kind of intimacy so i did this new this arrangement which is you know for the musicians out there it's kind of in a in triplet field but in five it has five beats and i try to uh, personalize it the same way i try to make an arrangement where where the ideas that i had kind of blend together with the song with with the melody right and the arrangement you know of the different voices and things like that Amanecer Contigo is a happy, uplifting, and love song. Uh, so it's a, I always say it's a love song with freedom. Uh, it's a song that I dedicated to my wife 
And um, amanecer contigo means a waking up with, with you. It captures that very optimistic, uplifting, and very enlightening you know, experience when you are in love in the morning and you're waking up with that person that you really love and you really care for. And, you know, it's that moment where you wake up and, and you realize where you're at in your life in terms of, of emotionally, right? I love the, the melody so much and it's very uh, happy and uplifting, let's put it that way. You could do a reggaeton version, man. Ah, a reggaeton version as well. <laughs> 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 I'm oh, kidding, man. I'm kidding. Let someone else do it and don't let me hear it. Prieto, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us, man. It's been it's been an honor to talk to you about your music, and I wanted to do this for a long time. So thank you. Thank you, my 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 very pleasure. And uh, you know, I wish you all the best and take care of yourself. You know, during these times. And uh, thank you for the invitation. It's a great pleasure and an honor for me. Thank you, Felix. Yeah, man. Daphnis Prieto is a jazz musician. We played bits and pieces of his much longer performances from the new album, Transparency. Please go to our website at npr.org slash altlatino to hear more of his music. Amanecer Contigo, from the Daphnis Prieto Sextet. You are listening to Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This week, we're talking to two musicians who have staked out their own unique path in music while defying expectations. Next up, film composer Carlos Rafael Rivera. His latest work is featured in the very popular Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. Now, before we start at the beginning of his story, Let's hear some of his work. This bit of the score from Queen's Gambit is called Plain Beltic. And if you've seen the series, you'll know the reference of the title. And if you haven't seen it, then just enjoy the dramatic, lush orchestrations. And then let's hear where it all came from.
I grew up actually in Central America. My dad's from Cuba, my mom's from Guatemala. I moved to Guatemala when I was six years old. Uh, when I moved to Costa Rica when I was nine, and I moved to Panama when I was 11 years old, and uh, back to Costa Rica when I was like about 13, and then I moved to Miami when I was 14. And it was in Costa Rica that my brother, my older brother, joined a, a rock band, and I would go watch them rehearse. I got an electric guitar, I started taking lessons there, and I was just like the, the four-year-old younger brother that shouldn't be there, and I was annoying them. All along that time, even when I was in Central America, I loved film music, but I never thought it would be something I'd be doing. Actually, I thought composers were born in another island, that they were from another country altogether, that it was just something that seemed so far away. And I was already aware of the names, people like Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams or James Horner, and I loved the soundtracks to E.T. Um, that we listened to. You know, I mean, we had the soundtracks for Star Wars as well. But again, it felt like the other thing that famous people do. And I certainly wasn't going to ever be part of that. When we moved to Miami, I got into the rock band thing. And then I started studying classical music. When I uh, went to university, I went to FIU, Florida International University. And I got my bachelor's and I fell in love with composition. I went to USC. And then once I, I, I moved to LA, that's when opportunities started to happen. I want to talk a little bit more about the job, the composer, the whole idea of like you create atmospheres. If you're doing your job, you don't even notice. The music enhances the visual aspect of it as an element of all the storytelling. It's it's such a long tradition and what I consider a noble tradition. Talk a little bit about that and how you feel where you fit in and, and what your goals and aims are to, to, to hmm. fit into that, that tradition. Well, I mean, I think if I talk first and foremost, it's it's from the point of view of a fan, because I'm no different in that sense that that I I've I'm such a big fan of good stories and good filmmaking, and I was then I still am now. If an amazing score comes out now, I'm like all over it. Like yesterday, I can't take it. You know, I I get moved by it. For me, it was a movie called The Great Train Robbery by Jerry Goldsmith that I saw in the movie theater in Guatemala, and. I just knew then that music was doing something special. I don't know how to explain it. Like you probably may not be able to verbalize it. That's the hard thing about talking about music because it just, you can't really do anything than just play it and someone will feel in a certain kind of emotion or reaction, a reaction will be, you know, will, will ensue. And that movie, I, I just remember listening to that, that score and going, God, this is so, so cool. And the same thing happened when I watched E.T. And that there's a couple moments other other than those. Like when the bike, uh, there's a moment in E.T. that probably everybody, most people listening may have seen it. When the bike takes off, I remember I was 11 years old. I was in the movie theater in Panama when I saw that. And tears jumped out of my eyeballs. I didn't start crying. It was just like, like there was this manipulated experience where all of these elements came together and the ecstasy of just sort of watching this breakthrough the impossible thing these bikes can fly now and et saving the day like the hero moment oh my god i i mean that moment to me is one where where i did not have any control of myself watching and as an 11 year old and then later in my 20s i saw a movie called cinema paradiso uh, where Ennio Morricone's score at the end, you know, I don't want to give it away for the few people who may have not seen it, but there is a sequence that happens right at the end 
where the same thing happened, like tears jumped out of my eyes. And I'm not kidding. It's like a muscle kicked in that I didn't know existed. And everything about our media experience is fake. We kind of give in to what's called the suspension of disbelief. We want to buy into a story if it's being well told. We want to believe that these spaceships are flying, that there are sounds in space and explosions happen in space, and that you know aliens are going to do something and that we're in peril. And what makes those things happen is a well-told story, well-crafted story. Uh, more importantly than it has to do with good cinematography. It has to do with good acting. And, and I believe, more importantly, a good sound. I, I think the sound design is one of the least spoken about aspects of, of storytelling in, in media. And you can shoot a movie beautifully, but if the sound's bad, it's, it's not a film. If you watch a very badly shot film, just the quality of it, but it sounds great, it's a movie. And, and the fact is that knowing, and that's the one thing I've been learning over the last seven or eight years that I've been doing this you know, actively, is how artificial the sound world is. About 80% of everything you're hearing in a movie experience is, is manufactured. So like if I had a leather jacket on, which I don't, but it would be cool, right? Um, and I was moving around, somebody would be doing the Foley for it and you'd be hearing the leather moving, which is impossible. I was just showing my wife a Silverado, just this, this dual scene in Silverado. And basically he's walking and there's a tumbleweed that's like a hundred meters away crossing the screen. You hear that tumbleweed in the movie. It's an impossibility in reality. But when, when we're in there, we're in the suspension of disbelief. Sound helps us submerge there. So my job as a composer is to add to that sonic landscape. My job is to like look at the topography as it's been laid out and bring out the things that are already there, more specifically to support dialogue. If dialogue is happening, to me, the dialogue is the melody of the story and the music is there to support, almost like a background musician to the lead singer. You know, when they sing a line, you kind of answer it, but you're never stepping over them. So it's a, it's a very delicate kind of thing that I've learned over the years to appreciate by which my greatest teacher is sound. And, and that's what's going to guide me. Apart, apart from, of course, you know, the directors, what they want and, and the kind of tone they want to establish. But my job is to work with sound to help tell the director's story.
Carlos Rivera's work on The Queen's Gambit came about because of his existing working relationship with the series director, Scott Frank. My first job with Scott Frank was a, a movie called The Walk Among the Tombstones and with Liam Neeson. And that was the biggest lucky break I think I could have ever hoped for. And then the second project I worked with him was Godless. For, it was our first project for Netflix. And that was a fantastic experience because Scott looks at them like movies. They're not like episodic television. However, it's almost like a seven-hour movie, if you will. Uh, it just happens to be broken up in chunks so you can you know, digest it, I guess. And the same thing happened with The Queen's Gambit. So it's, it's my third experience getting to do this. And, and like I told you before, as a fan... I feel like right now, like I'm lying a little bit. I feel like a little bit of the imposter syndrome thing, you know, because I've been hearing some of the data of how well the show's done. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool, whatever. I don't think it's real, you know, because it really has been a joy to get to work with him. And the challenges have been challenges in, in learning how to tell story that are making me a better musician. And I feel very blessed to you know, to be at this moment uh, in time right now, because I think I'm, uh, there's so much more to learn, yet I've been uh, given an education while on the job, if anything, if that makes any sense. I want to go back to the first part of your life when you said you moved from various countries, from, from uh, Guatemala, Costa Rica, yeah, yeah. and these different places. Did you absorb any of the music that was... Uh, from each of those countries that was would be considered folkloric music or music reflected of that country? Because I'm sure that there's certainly always like this international web of, of, of pop music that we all absorb, right? But was there something specific to each one of those cultures that you heard and maybe sunk in a little bit? You know, it, it's funny. I think uh, I think there was a sort of a big change in my 20s when I started studying music you know, at university, because I, I was late to the game, I was going to become an accountant, and then I kind of switched. And growing up uh, in Central America, I remember in Guatemala, you know, there was, um, there, there was a, a, a Sunday show that played all afternoon. In, in Latin culture in Miami, there's a show called, there was a show called Sábado Gigante, if not, it's still there. there. This kind of thing is actually kind of a common thing in, in Central America, in Latin America. And I remember listening to marimbas in Guatemala as a kid, and I remember listening, I still remember the melody for Tecunumán, which is the national hero of Guatemala. Is this Tecunumán, guerrero inmortal, que a mi país quisiste librar. It's a beautiful little melody, you know? Um, and it's nicely written and nicely structured. And uh, those things were there, and then there was the music my father listened to because he's Cuban. So he was listening to Benny More and Armando Manzanero, as I was growing up, you said it very beautifully. There was a web of pop music. That's the music I actually listened to. Even though there was all this cultural uh, uh, stuff going on as part of the canvas upon which I was in the countries of each country I was living in, there was, there was this pop music that I was a fan of. And whenever we'd travel to Miami on vacation, we'd get to hear things earlier because back then in the 70s and the early 80s, distribution was a thing. And so something came out then, like today in Miami, it wouldn't come out in Costa Rica until six months later or three months later, especially movies, you know? So we'd come back with records and stuff, and they're like, how'd you get that? I was like, oh, went to Miami. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so there was that kind of very cool early on thing. But what was the music? It was Boston. It was, uh, 
you know, bands that we, I loved ELO, I loved Queen, you know, and then of course as puberty kicks in, it becomes Ozzy Osbourne and metal music, which is the 80s, which is the time I grew up in. So it was kind of a big mix. And like I to finish circularly to answer the question that you'd asked is that in my 20s, when I started studying music at university, I started to actually appreciate all the stuff my dad was singing that I was like in the background. But I started realizing, oh, my God, these boleros are beautifully written, you know, and this music. And, and I started to really start uh, to appreciate the kind of different things of each culture, how they brought their element. And and they are varied from country to country. I think that when people think of Latin music and Latin musicians, there are certain preconceived notions about what that sounds like or what is expected of Latin musicians uh, whatever genre they're working in. And I think that what's fascinating to me about your career is that, you know, you have all of these cultural touchstones as a youngster because it's not overt. It's not like this is this is a Guatemalan sound. It's interpreted through all of your experiences and, and your education and the things that you like, things you don't like, things you learn. And it's meshed in with everything else, right? So it's not right. it's not distinctly Guatemalan or Costa Rican, but it's there. It's there somewhere in the DNA. You know what I mean? Yeah, if anything, there's an aspect of the music I write that has syncopation to it, but it's not overt in any sense that you would be thinking, oh, it's the it's the Cuban guy or it's the Guatemalan guy. You know, I, I think good music is something that you, you aspire to do always, and, and you kind of go to the well that of the things that you've listen to all your life you're always reflecting back the things you love in what you're doing and regardless of where your upbringing comes comes to be i think when it's well done it's because you're honoring like you said the tradition you know like lawrence of arabia like those great things are 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 great because i think they're the main concern and objective was to tell the story in the best way possible there were there were there were a few scenes in the queen's gambit where where she goes to paris and she goes to mexico and one of the first things i started to do was like for mexico i started going there right like with the latino you know sound of you know and however the the music i started to write was actually an argentinian milonga which is Mm, mm, mm. you know this sort of like a rhythmic and that music got thrown away by the director it because and it wasn't because it was try it was on so on point because the same thing happened when we went to the soviet union it, you know what am i going to do you know how do you address that it's because we started realizing that there was a point of view in that specific story that had to be from beth it wasn't anybody else's point of view it's specifically that one character's point of view and the music is about her or different aspects of her so it's her in context to the places that she's in and if there's a cue in in the soundtrack i guess it's called the the mexico city tournament and you won't really find anything that feels you know like mexican for that and if anything that comes close to the soviet union which is what it was with ussr in the 60s when she went um it's just the orchestration, if anything, trying to calls to the to the place we're in, but it's never overt. It's certainly not overt in Paris either. You know, it's just aspects of it because we're talking about a character. If we were doing a location-based story where it's about the place, like a Coco kind of thing, where where the where the story and origin story of this kind of uh, 
uh, folklore and beliefs come from, you're going to have to go to that, the tropes, if you will. But knowing the tropes, I think, informs what to avoid when you're helping tell a story. And I think it, it also can't get cheesy. I think it's, it's a really, it could become a real easy crutch to, to lean on. If you're like, hey, look, you know, I get, a, I get a Hispanic opportunity or something as a composer. It's like, if the story's not asking for it, there's no need. That was an education too, because my first things were to kind of go Latin with Mexico. I was smiling, I was like, I'm reading the Mexico scene. And I was like, ooh, but nope, nope, it, it did, didn't work for the story. So you, you respect the story. There are lessons about the impact of musical and cultural influences on the creative process in these stories this week. Both Carlos Rafael Rivera and Daphnis Prieto helped us have a deeper understanding of the creative process and how cultural influences shaped that creative output. And in this case, that process is also being shared since both musicians are instructors at the Frost School of Music at the University of Miami, which makes the themes of expectations that we talked about this week have even more of a profound impact as students of both Daphnis Prieto and Carlos Rafael Rivera follow their lead in defying expectations. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Felix Contreras. Be safe and please be careful out there, folks. Mm -hmm.